The journey you and I are on is one of discipleship. It's following Jesus day in and day out of being formed and conformed to his image. It's a process of growing alive, deep, and bold in the love and knowledge of Jesus. This is discipleship. And discipleship, in part, is a solitary journey because he says, I have called you. But being a disciple is never, ever meant to be a solitary journey. For he has not only called you, he has called us together. So let me repeat it. Discipleship was never meant to be a solitary, solitary journey. It was meant to be done in the company of the church. Ah, that word, church. You know, what do we mean by church? Now, if you ask people on the street, what is church? They would probably say, well, that's that place you go to on Sunday, right? It's a building, you know, and we often say, are you going to church this morning? And so the clear implication is it's that place you go to that interrupts your Sunday morning. Because quite frankly, for most of the culture, most people, church has become a place to go or attend or a thing to do. It often becomes just one more thing on your list, right? Oh, I got to go to church this morning. And if it becomes just one more thing, it can easily become rote or a dead obligation. It's a dead obligation for most people going to church, right? You know, how many people say, well, if church wasn't so long, I'd be willing to go to church. Could they at least get it under an hour, right? When people say that, you know that it's become this dead obligation. Or they say, well, it interrupts my morning, or I can't get to do what I want in the afternoon because it pushes things too far. It's my only day to rest, right? It, these are all symptoms of church being something that is dead, a rote thing to do. But is that what church is? Is that what church is? Or is there something more to it? That's the question. What is church? And so today we are beginning a new series called What is Church? It's the first this morning is the first of a five part series on this particular topic. Today, we're going to take a look at the foundation of the church, what holds it all together. The other parts of the series are going to be the foundation of, uh, I'm sorry, the function of the church, the purpose and mission of the church. But today is the foundation. So we're going to take a look at three aspects of this foundation. We will look at the confession, the foundation, and the promise of church. So let's go to our scripture reading. We are in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, starting with verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. A lot of people are familiar with this particular section of Scripture. 
And in it, Jesus asks a very straightforward but penetrating question. Who do you say that I am? See, it's that one question that cuts through all the other stuff about religions, that cuts through all the other stuff about philosophies, about every other objection that people have about Christianity or faith or that does God exist. Who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say? See, that one question is so important that if you noticed on the back of the card, my business card, that's the question on there. Because that is the most important question you can probably ask people, who do you say that Jesus is? And it does not matter if you ask that from people who don't go to church or people who are in church. That question needs to be asked by everybody. When Peter answered, his confession is clear. It is precise. It does not waffle one iota. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Notice, nowhere in that confession does Peter say, you are a Christ, a Son of a God. You hear the difference between those two little words, right? The versus a. He says, you are the Christ of the Sorry, I'm going to get it right. You are the Christ of the Son of the living God. It's actually just ten words in the Greek. And in those ten words, if you do it literally, he uses the word the four times. It literally would be, you are the Christ, the Son of the God of the living. So for grammatical reasons, we combine the two and say, of the living God. But he doesn't say in general. He says very specifically, And when he says you are the Christ, it carries the full weight of all the Old Testament. When he says you are the Christ, it means, and we've been doing this in Bible study, it means you can trace him all the way back to King David. He is the line of King David whose kingdom shall have no end. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the anointed one. He is the Savior who has come from God himself. So when he says, the Christ, he carries that full weight of who Jesus is. The Christ carries the full weight, and it means that he is unique There is no other Christ. There is no other Son of God. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. Jesus always is, was, is, and will be the only Son of God, the only Christ, the only Savior against everything else. He is the one. You see, in that short confession, Peter also would say this, Paul wrote this, but Peter would fully agree. This is from Colossians 1, 15 through 17. And if you like uh, to highlight certain things in your Bible, this is one to highlight. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. This is speaking of Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, 
whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's what Peter is confessing. No waffling, no hesitating, clear, concise. Peter's confession declares the uniqueness of Jesus. And the words weren't hollow. Peter's words weren't hollow. They had a life-changing, transformative effect on him. And it wasn't just his intellect. It wasn't that he just put the puzzle pieces together. This is what Jesus says, and his answer to Peter is profound. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. That means just simply son of Jonah. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The gift of faith, the gift of confession is given by God himself. It's just not something intellectual that you put together. It's just not some argument that you have. It is God acting in people, bringing them to faith. Jesus, with Nicodemus, he says, unless you're born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God. It is God acting, giving faith. So let me ask you this morning, what's your confession? Do you have just an intellectual assent? Like, you know what? Yeah, I've gone to church, this building. We've done this over and over again. We say these things, but is it just a dead, empty, rote thing you say? Or does it fill you? Does it move you? Your confession. Let's go to the foundation. And then Jesus says, verse 18, And I tell you, you are Peter, And on this rock, I will build my church. Now, there has been a lot of interpretation on this little one verse here. A lot of interpretations. Most of the church interpretations come into play because of the Greek play on words. Because Jesus is doing a little play on words that we don't hear otherwise. So the play on words is this. Peter is Petros, masculine form. Petros, which means rock. And he says, on this rock, which is Petra, which is a feminine form. So you got it, rock, on this rock, rock. That's what he's saying. So what are the interpretations for this particular one? Well, specifically, the Catholic Church uses this one verse to declare that Peter is the first pope, and he is the leader of the church. That's one interpretation. Another interpretation that Peter is representative of all the leadership of the church or the church in general. On this rock could also refer to the place where Jesus could have been standing, a location considered to be the gateway to the underworld. Jesus would then be proclaiming the power to overcome these demonic forces. So while I believe the Catholic Church has truly erred in their interpretation of this particular verse, 
It is not my intent this morning to go into all of the nitty-gritty and the grammar and all the scriptural references we would have to do, because I think, brothers and sisters in Christ, we miss the point. See, Jesus isn't saying, Peter, you're going to build the church. James, John, Andrew, you're going to build the church. If you read it carefully, he says, I will build my church. Do you hear that? Jesus said, I will build my church. Jesus is both the architect and the foundation of the church. You should understand this. Jesus is both the architect and the foundation of the church. From our reading from Ephesians today, it says, And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things of the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I would actually encourage you to go back to our reading from Ephesians and read that. It talks about who Jesus is. He is the head of everything, but he is also our rock. He is our cornerstone. He is the foundation upon which everything is laid. And what is laid upon the foundation? It is the church. Oh, there's that word again, church. You have to know in the Gospel of Matthew, in the Bible, this is the first time ever that the word church is used. In the Greek, it means, literally reads, ecclesia, which is defined as an assembly or called out once. So it has... It has the sense, then, of the people, not the building. I mean, Paul, in Romans chapter 16, he says, Greet the church that is in their house. It'd be pretty weird to have him say, Greet the building that's in their building, right? I mean, it doesn't mean that. So when he says, Greet the church, he means the assembly are called out ones. And so, the root meaning of church is not that of a building, but of people. So what is the church? The church are those who confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, who confess with their mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in their hearts that God raised him from the dead. The church are those who confess that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. The church are those who confess that Jesus is the shepherd who know his sheep and the sheep know his voice. What is the church? The church are those who know that that they're sinners saved only by the grace of God in Christ Jesus. What is the church? The church are those who have repented of their sins, who've been baptized, and who come and gather together to share the good news and to be strengthened and edified for works of ministry. That is the church. You and I together are the church. This is the church universal that we're talking about here. 
This is why I can actually have fellowship with other churches from other denominations that hold fast to those confessions that do not waver, that do not falter on who Jesus is and why he came and who we are in relationship to him. I can have fellowship with them. I can have fellowship with Baptists. I can have fellowship with a number of denominations, but I cannot have fellowship with those who deny that because they're no longer the church. There's the confession. There's the foundation. And now Jesus is going to give a promise. As the head of the church, the one who lives and reigns forever, ever, there's literally nothing, no thing that will triumph over those who hold fast. So let's go to the promise. The promise is this. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, it's interesting. When you start to understand some of the history of where Jesus was, they were in Caesarea Philippi. And likely, it's not certain, but it's very possible, they were at the base of Mount Hermon. At the base of Mount Hermon is one of the largest springs that feed the Jordan River. So it would have been a wonderful place to teach. But you have to understand, against that backdrop, here's the spring, against all of that, in the mountain and around it, are temples and shrines to pagan gods. So, for example, there's a huge temple for Caesar Augustus. Remember, Caesars were elevated to be gods. That's one. There was the uh, temple to Pan, Pan is the, a Greek god as well. He was the one who was half goat, so from waist down he was goat. He also had horns, and he would play this flute. Uh, you, re, you might have remembered it's just like looks like reeds that going back and forth. That's Pan. So there was a goddess to Pan, uh, a temple to Pan. Excuse me. There was also a temple to uh, the dancing goat, and another to the sacred goat. So as I studied this, I thought it was kind of interesting that goats really kind of play up here quite a bit in all of these Greek gods and pagan gods. And it really, just as a side note, led me to think, wow, when Jesus said he's going to separate the sheep and goats, it has a little maybe fuller meaning than that. So that's kind of a potential backdrop against which Jesus gave his promise and the gates of hell should not prevail against it. We can't say that for sure, but it sure does help us with our understanding. Because even if they weren't right there at the spring, they would have been in that area, and those temples would have been well known. So the gates of hell, the demonic forces that wish to subvert, pervert, destroy who Christ is and who his believers are, who his disciples are, his followers... And Jesus gives this statement. He says, and the gates of hell shall not overcome it. So he's talking about the church, right? But does this mean individual churches can falter or fall? Well, in the news, we see this in the Catholic church. 
right now, and it should break our hearts what's going on there, because those are demonic forces at work. But it is not just the Catholic Church. This has been happening throughout the churches. If you start to read the news, you will find that it's just as bad in other denominations within Christianity. And it should sicken us about how bad it was. And it should not surprise us, though, because it's been happening since the time of the disciples. Read Paul's letter to the Corinthians, first letter. Wow, what a problematic church. Read Revelations chapter 2 and 3, and look at all the warnings that Jesus gives to the churches that they not fall away, that they not follow false gods. So it's been happening a long time. So we cannot conclude that the promise of Jesus is built on individual churches. No, we can't conclude that at all. The promise Jesus makes is not dependent on the believers, but on Jesus. The promise that Jesus makes is not dependent upon the believers, but on Jesus himself. Now I want to give a a big warning. I've already pointed to it already. When you move Jesus from the center of faith or change who Jesus is, or the message of the cross, you stop being the church and you lose the promise. I'm going to say it again. When you move Jesus from the center of faith or change who Jesus is or the message of the cross, you stop being the church and you lose the promise. So let me give you an example here. In a lot of churches nowadays, there's something called universalism. Universalism says doesn't matter what you believe, you're saved. You can believe anything you want, you're saved. You don't have to believe that Jesus died for your sins. You don't have to believe that the cross was anything other than symbolic. You don't have to believe any of that. You can just try to be a good person, and that's good enough, and so you're saved. Because God is love, right? And all roads lead to God because of universalism. Well, when you do that, when you go down that road, the cross, Jesus, loses its meaning. And therefore, what do you have to work on? Well, you have social justice issues to work on. For example, let me give you an ex- uh, from this year, from I think it was June or July of just this year, the PCUSA, Presbyterian Church, United States of America, which is a very liberal denomination. This is what they voted on in their meeting. These were the main points of their discussion at their church-wide assembly. Fossil fuel divestment. Israel-Palestine-Middle East violence. Racism-Poverty violence. Immigration-Gun violence. Did any of you hear Jesus there? Did any of you hear the proclamation of going and making disciples? I didn't. I don't see that in anything that they were writing about. Now, I'm not saying the whole denomination is universalism thrown off, but certainly the leadership of that denomination has gone so far astray that Jesus no longer gets proclaimed. He becomes more of a side note 
to who they are. They don't want to be exclusive, right? And so, thus a lot of denominations also invite Muslim speakers to come and even preach. But what did Jesus say? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's that little word, the, again, isn't it? He says, no one comes to the Father but through me. And listen to what Peter, the rock, listen to what Peter wrote. This is an, Peter said, this is an Acts chapter 4. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. See, once you move Jesus out of the center of your faith, what do you have left? The only thing you have left is, will you start to worship yourselves or parts of creation, idolatry? There's a so-called, and I use the term so loosely, a so-called Lutheran church called Her Church, which even the name should give you a little clue here. This is their mission statement. Our mission, our mission is to embody the voice, sorry, our mission is to embody and voice the prophetic wisdom and word of the divine feminine, to uplift the values of compassion, creativity, and care for the earth and one another. That's a mission statement of a so-called Christian church. And by the way, I've read it a number of times. I don't know what it means. Do you know what it means? I didn't get it. It's, it's, it's just bizarre. You see, when Jesus is not the center, there is a glorification of human pride and ultimately human depravity. We glorify our pride and we glorify depravity. And when that happens, the churches are quickly overtaken by the gates of hell. That's what happens. Paul in Galatians He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Accursed means anathema or damned. Let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul specifically writing, you leave the gospel, you leave Christ, there's damnation. The gates of hell. So this morning, there's that one key question. Who do you say that Jesus is? What is your confession? Do you waver on it? Are you unsure? Are you ashamed? See, we must be able to stand firm in who Christ is and the message he gave us, which is that we are sinners and he is our Savior. We must be able to confess that individually and as a church. So the question this morning is, what is your confession? What is your foundation? What is the promise you cling to? 
Are you the church? Are we the church? Amen.